Hello and welcome to the Carecast. This week I'm joined by my colleague James Mildred, uh, James's Head of Communications at Care. James, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been working for Care for? Yeah, uh, hi Naomi, great to be with you. Weird to be this way around. Normally I'm hosting a podcast and now I'm appearing as a guest on podcast so uh, slightly strange this is actually the first time I've been a guest on a podcast in my entire life so um, who knows what's about to happen but I'm, <laughs> I'm excited um, so I, I started working for care at the end of 2014 uh, to be precise it was the 8th of November 2014 and I'd just come from working in the Scottish Parliament during the independence referendum of 2014 up there and I worked for CARE for about two years, and then I left and went to a church just north of Bristol in a place called Yate, and I did some training there. Um, and after around about two years there, I, I then came back to CARE in a new role, and I've been at CARE uh, ever since. So in total, I've been at CARE for around about four years now. Goodness me, wow. Amazing. So um, today we're talking about um, a very sensitive issue, which is very controversial. And that's the topic of assisted uh, suicide. Some people call it assisted dying, can be known as euthanasia. So this is a topic that I know that you feel particularly strongly about. Um, and I think one of the, the first times I met you, you said that this was the issue that, that really uh, grabs your heart. So could you just tell us a little bit about how you how you became um, really interested in this topic and why it's such an important issue for you yeah I mean I think for me it's a funny one because I don't think it was ever a conscious thing when I, I didn't join care off the back of feeling particularly strongly about this issue um, I hadn't been aware of uh, many of the debates that took place in Scotland when I was living there for example uh, while I was at university there were debates around changing the law in respect to assisted suicide I don't remember being particularly affected by those debates. But I think when I came to care and quite quickly was involved in uh, some court cases that were happening and giving comment on them to the media, for example, and also uh, there was within, I think, less than a year of starting work at care, there was a very significant vote that took place in, in uh, September 2015. Um, and I think uh, on the Rob Maris assisted dying bill, it was, it was the last major attempt at Westminster to change the law in England and Wales. And I think I just found that it was something that I could speak about with particular passion and clarity. I, I remember going up to Derby, for example, to a church husting style thing uh, to persuade uh, the MP there. Uh, whether or not you know she should vote, which she she wasn't sure which way she was going to vote, and I was there to represent the argument saying don't vote for Rob Maris's bill, and someone from Dignity and Dying was there to say do vote for it, and I I just love the opportunity to articulate why it is so important that we care for people towards the end of their life, and why the push for legalizing assisted suicide uh, or assisted killing is really driven by an incredibly individualistic ideology. Uh, and, and as a Christian, as someone who believes that community and common good, and that we are all made in the image of God, we're all individuals, we're all autonomous to a degree, but nevertheless, the decisions that we make have ripple effects that, that have consequences for others around about us. I actually came to the view, I think it was there instinctively already, but I was able to articulate it and learn new ways of articulating it, that 
that the Christian viewpoint, I believe, is to say no to assisted suicide. And that is a better position, a better story for people who experience suffering at the end of their lives. And I do wonder if part of my interest in this is because um, I, have a, I have a dad who is uh, older than um, most people my age dads would be. Um, very diplomatically put. Uh, that was very <laughs> You've no idea how many times I've had this <laughs> in my life. Um, you know, essentially, it, when I was at school, I'd go around friends' houses, their parents would say when my dad came to pick me up, you know, James, your granddad's here to pick you up. So that gives you an idea of, of where we're at with this. And and I do wonder if that if that contributed at all to it. And I, I was always struck by the fact that, that when you looked at the evidence... Wherever you see assisted suicide or euthanasia legalized, what you see as a result is rising case numbers and also this idea that, that people choose it because they're, they're afraid of being a burden uh, on, on others. And, and you know, I remember writing a, a, a ghostwriting a piece for, for a CARES chief exec, Noah Leach, uh, and it was in response to uh, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey, um, and Lord Carey had come out in favour of assisted uh, dying, as it was called, back in back in 2015. And in the piece, I, I argued um, that being a burden is actually how we, we are made. Uh, God, God has made us dependent. From, from the moment we are born, we're dependent upon others for uh, sustenance, food, for being looked after, for care. It, it's why when uh, babies are abandoned, it's so brutal, because it's a violation of of the instinctive way things should be, which is that we should care for a baby because a baby is vulnerable. And um, it was in this piece, I tried to persuade Nola to call um, Lord Carey the, uh, what was it, the the high priest of assisted suicide. But unfortunately, uh, she, she vetoed that line. That <laughs> was probably a good, a good move. But I, I think that concept of being a burden as a positive is a uniquely Christian concept. And it's yeah. something that, I think Christianity can speak into this debate that, that our response to intense suffering at the end of life is not to view it as something to be avoided or run from or scared of, but rather to approach it with a desire to um, help that person, to carry that burden for them, to share in their suffering. I, th I think that is uniquely Christian. The mm. uh, parable of the Good Samaritan would be a good example. I, I just think that's a better story. Um, and that's quite apart from all of the very powerful medical reasons why I don't think we should be giving doctors the legal power uh, to kill patients under any circumstances. So uh, that's a very long-winded way of saying that that was sort of my journey into this into this issue. And I, I look, I've spoken in the media about it um, a number of times. I've, I've written pieces about it, and and my over the years, my conviction has grown stronger, not not weaker. Mm, it's wonderful hearing you talk about this because it's clear that you have uh, a very strong um, conviction sort of theologically you really understand the theological arguments but also the political and the medical arguments as you say and later on we're going to be talking a bit, bit about some of the main arguments people use in favour of assisted suicide and how we we can counter those um, and, and know how to respond as Christians um, but just finally you, you mentioned the Maris bill um, in 2015 and of course you were you were working for CARE at the time can you tell us a bit about what that was like, this kind of great victory um, where, where the law was resounding, this uh, attempt to change the law was resoundingly defeated. What was that like at the time being there? 
It was, it was the first major campaign that I was involved in. Uh, it was a huge learning curve. Uh, it was an opportunity to meet with MPs and disability rights campaigners and doctors, medical professionals. Uh, it, was a, it was a huge effort and, and CARE was privileged to play a, a part in uh, the endeavors to resist that bill, but many, many others also played their part. And uh, it was really fascinating because we were trying to influence the media, trying to get stories placed in the media from our point of view. That was an uphill battle from day one. You had editors saying, I don't want to publish this piece because I'm worried about the reaction from here, there and everywhere. And there was a very strong and very powerful lobby that was pushing for this change. But I will never forget the day of the actual vote. So the Rob Maris Assisted Dying Bill, number two, uh, as it was called, because there was at the time an assisted dying bill in the House of Lords. Um, it was a bill that was aiming to uh, legalise a physician-assisted suicide for um, terminally ill patients who had six months left to live. And there were a number of safeguards that were in so-called safeguards included in the legislation. Uh, for example, two doctors had to, I think it was two doctors had to approve it. And if there was a dispute, judges would get involved. It was something like that. I, I forget the details now. But in the debate itself, in the second reading debate, it was a Friday, the 11th of September, 2015. One of the really interesting things that happened during that debate was you, you actually heard MPs stand up, MP after MP after MP from both sides of the house saying, I came in to the chamber today determined to vote for this bill. But having heard the arguments as to why we should not legalise assisted suicide, I am now going to vote against this bill. And in the end, it was defeated by 330 votes to 118. So it was a significant defeat. Um, and there's one thing that I've taken from that, which is when you take the view, as I do, that uh, we should not legalise assisted suicide or euthanasia. I mean, assisted suicide is... is Euthanasia is awful. I mean, euthanasia is, is truly, truly horrendous. Assisted suicide is, is just as bad, but I think in some people's mind, it's, it's, it's a milder form of, of, of euthanasia. They, they are, in fact, distinct because assisted suicide is where the doctor will provide the medication, but um, you yourself will have to administer it as the patient. So you yourself will voluntarily, uh, as it were, take the, take the actual uh, drug. So it's an assisted suicide, whereas... Um, euthanasia, the doctor will actually give you the injection, uh, usually um, him or herself. So there is a distinction. But um, it, it did strike me that, that when we argue against this, that those arguments are, in fact, more persuasive than, than we often think or believe. But it's much more difficult to get them out because their arguments very much based on logic and very much based upon reason and very much based upon uh, tradition and history. The arguments that are drawn from um, uh, not so much emotional individual cases, but more from a kind of from a common good perspective. So we, we argue against it from the point of view of saying this is too dangerous, this is too risky, and it can come across very abstract. But, but when those arguments are presented well, as, it, as they were in the 2015 debate and, and CARE was able to work with MPs to resource them with the very arguments that they used in that debate, then it can be very, very, very powerful. Uh, and I just, that is an encouragement to all of you watching and listening who think this is a lost cause. Uh, it's not a lost cause um, because when we are able to get the arguments out there, they can carry the day. They did in 2015. And I, I hope, I pray 
uh, that they'll carry the day again. So, um, yeah, the Rob Maris assisted dying bill was the last major parliamentary attempt at Westminster to change the law, and it, it was overwhelmingly defeated. Um, and uh, we'll have to see what happens in the coming days. Uh, can you just tell us first of all what, what's the law in the UK at the moment? Uh, is there a different law in Great Britain, in Northern Ireland? Um, could you just tell us what the yeah, law is as, so, as it stands? So, at, as ever, because we have devolution, the, the situation is 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 never is never simple. But but broadly speaking, um, there's a piece of legislation called the 1961 Suicide Act, uh, and this decriminalised the act of suicide and an attempt uh, to commit suicide but it put a very strong prohibition on assisting someone to commit suicide or encouraging someone to commit suicide. And that applies in England and Wales and in Northern Ireland as well. The law in Scotland is a bit different in that it's not technically illegal. Um, However, there's no case law uh, from which to kind of demonstrate uh, the illegality of it. But there are, within Scots law, a number of very clear prohibitions. So murder, culpable homicide, for example, that you would think if there was an incident, if there was a case, that they would apply. And that's why, for example, as far as campaigners are concerned, they still want to try and change the law in Scotland uh, to introduce assisted suicide. Um, And it's just really interesting. In 2015, we also saw an assisted suicide bill in the Scottish Parliament defeated by uh, 82 votes to 36. So there's 129 MSPs in the Scottish Parliament, so obviously lower numbers than than down at Westminster. And they called it an assisted suicide bill, whereas uh, down in Westminster, they called it an assisted dying bill. Let's just be really clear about this. During the evidence session to the committee, uh, Patrick Harvey, the leader or co-leader, as I think he is now, of the Scottish Green Party, had the courage to admit that what they were talking about in Scotland was assisted suicide. Uh, And he refused to use the term assisted dying because he, along with those of us who were campaigning against him, agreed that assisted dying is, is, is nothing more than a euphemism. It is a deliberate attempt to manipulate language to make something that is truly horrendous sound nicer, easier, simpler, softer, gentler. So don't be fooled. And I would really strongly encourage people out there, do not use the term assisted dying. It is a euphemism. Uh, We should instead be using the term assisted suicide or assisted killing, because that is what it is. Um, and that's not me, you know, being deliberately uh, pernickety or, or, or whatever. I'm, I'm, I actually think it's a really important point because in this debate, perhaps more than any other language really matters. Um, so that, that's just a, a fascinating observation. So um, at the moment, assisted suicide and euthanasia in all its forms is illegal in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And although it's not codified in law in the same way in Scotland, uh, it, it's not something that happens in Scotland. It's not something that is is probably allowed under under Scots law um, and that's why campaigners are trying to change the law. So we know that in um, there are a few jurisdictions around the world where it is in fact legal as well as euthanasia. Um, how, what, what do you know about some of those jurisdictions and you talked about this kind of euphemistic language um, that's used. I, I think in, in Oregon, it's known as the Dignity and Dying Act. Is that right? So yeah. um, that, that's often a, a term that's used. Um, what, what examples have you seen of how the law's been changed and how um, maybe some of those safeguards that have been introduced have, have changed over time? Um, could, you, could you give some examples of those? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. So, for example, Oregon State in, in America uh, introduced their, um, their assisted suicide laws in 1997. Um, and since then, we've seen uh, rising numbers, exponentially rising numbers, and also a, a significant proportion of patients who choose uh, assisted suicide uh, will put as a determining factor the fact that they were afraid of being a burden uh, upon loved ones, upon hospitals, and so on and so forth. Um, in Washington state, you've had uh, similar laws in place since 2008. You've also seen increases in the number of people taking it up. Uh, and again, uh, similarly to Oregon, percentage is high of people who say, I'm afraid of being a burden. Um, and there are a good number of cases in both jurisdictions where people's pain was under control. Um, and that heightens this idea that, that if you change the law to permit assisted suicide in, in any form, that it creates a kind of a burden of expectation uh, for some people, that, that some people would perhaps uh, get to a point where they feel like they should do this because it would be wrong of them not to do it. And, and that is a is such a tragic place to end up in where someone feels like they have to have help to kill themselves, not because they're in unbearable pain, but because they feel like that's their duty. That That's, that's terrible. Um, and then Canada introduced a federal law which legalized a form of assisted suicide in 2016. And interestingly, it wasn't that long ago that uh, the Canadian government was making noises that it was actually going to expand uh, the assisted suicide law that applied in Canada. So it was talking about a provision in the original legislation, which they suddenly deemed to be sort of not right or fair or unconstitutional. And they basically wanted to get rid of it and water it down. And, and you see this kind of this mission creep that happens. Um, you see it even more starkly in, in some of our European neighbours. So uh, Netherlands, for example, euthanasia has been legal since 2002. Um, and one of the really uh, awful things that has taken place in the Netherlands is the way that euthanasia laws have been expanded. So uh, what began as, you know, certain circumstances euthanasia would apply. Uh, just recently, for example, there were moves to try and uh, legalize it for anyone over the age of 75 who was simply tired of life. So didn't even have to have a terminal illness. Uh, and then you also saw uh, recent moves where the Dutch government has said, we are going to change the law so that euthanasia will apply to uh, children aged between one and 12. So when the law originally came in 2002, it was 12 plus, uh, but now they wanna change that so that between the ages of one and 12, if a child has a terminal illness, that they can be euthanized. Cases of people in, in the Netherlands being euthanized for depression, for anorexia, for blindness. Um, in Belgium as well, euthanasia has been legal since 2002. And again, that has been expanded since it was first introduced to include children of any age. And, and the numbers have gone up in both of these countries. And there's a, there's a culture of, of death that is created by this. And the relationship between the medical profession and patients is fundamentally been altered. Um, there's a really interesting case that's taking place. Uh, there was a, a man in Belgium um, and uh, his mum was euthanized. Uh, she had depression. And uh, this man got a call from the hospital. And that was the first he heard about the fact his mum had been killed. And it was the hospital phoning to say, what, what should we do with her remains? Now, how, how can we as a civilized society get to a point where that is the way that we are treating human beings? Um, and and we, we often get accused on, on our side of the argument of scaremongering, but it is a historical fact that one of the hallmarks of a totalitarian regime, one of the hallmarks of 
fascism in the 1940s was that they introduced euthanasia laws to get rid of undesirables. And while it's true to say that the current situation, there are safeguards and there are things that are so-called, there are things in place to try and protect from, from becoming that extreme, look at the way that the laws have been expanded over time. And what you see is you see eugenics at work. You see this idea that, that there are certain characteristics, uh, weaknesses, uh, disabilities uh, within human beings that we don't really want because it's affecting uh, our collective gene pool, as it were. And so let's introduce laws under the guise of compassion and dignity that will, will ultimately get rid of these. Uh, and that way we can create a stronger and, and more, um, you know, prosperous human race. And this is largely influenced by evolutionary ideology as well. And, and I'm not someone who has much truck with this because of how influential it has been with, uh, with eugenics and, th and that whole movement. So again, what you then have to come back to as a Christian is you have to come back to uh, where does a person's dignity come from? Because if my dignity is something that I inherit based upon uh, certain criteria, then yes, you can see the logic of having laws that say, well, you are undesirable because you don't meet the standard for having dignity. This is a very kind of Greco-Roman uh, cultural idea. You know, way, way back when you had Greek Empire, Roman Empire, what was the thing they valued? They valued physical strength. That was the great thing in that day. You know, your value and dignity as a human being was intricately linked to how physically strong and capable you were. And so what that led to was this creation of undesirable peoples and people groups, and they were treated worse than those who are physically desirable. Whereas the Christian worldview doesn't ground your dignity in something that you've inherited. It instead says that you are, you are dignified no matter how strong you are, no matter what um, sex you are, no matter how many disabilities you might have, you are valuable because from the moment of conception, you're an image bearer of God. And so that the dignity then doesn't come from our own characteristics or our own strength, but it, it comes from outside of us. Um, and it grounds it in the unchanging character of God himself. And so to uh, assist someone to die before their time has come, under God's sovereignty, is to violate uh, the dignity that God has given that person. So whether you are in a coma in a hospital bed or whether you are receiving a gold medal at the Olympics, there is no difference in God's eyes between which human being in that scenario is more valuable. Mm -hmm. That is the kind of basis for why, you know, what's happened in Belgium, the Netherlands, Oregon, Washington State, and Canada in parts of Australia, in Switzerland as well, there's assisted suicide laws there. It, it is so tragic because it, it, it completely undermines the idea that, that you never stop mattering, that you never stop being valuable, that, that your human dignity can never be violated. And that, that's what the Christian worldview teaches. And that is, that is unique and powerful. So why do you think the issue um, is become is getting a lot more support? And we, we see polling regularly showing that there's quite high support, in fact, um, for the government in, in this country to introduce assisted suicide. Um, and we, we see, like you say, the media uh, are very pro-assisted suicide. Why, why is there such increasing pressure right now um, for parliaments and assemblies across the UK to change the law? I think two, two things, that there are more, but two things. One is that often the way these opinion polls are framed is that the, the 
the way they're framed is to elicit the emotional response, uh, whereby you know you're presented with a scenario that is is tugs at your heartstrings. And and let's be clear that there are instances of, of genuinely awful suffering at the end of life. This is a broken world. It's a fallen world. Things go wrong, and sometimes they go spectacularly wrong. And those particular cases, there there aren't in the bigger picture. There are not many of them. These aren't happening every single day, every single week. But those cases, when you're presented with them, even myself as someone who resists assisted suicide and euthanasia is affected by what I read and what I see. And in that situation, when the majority of people in this country are not coming from a Christian worldview point of view, without that grounding in human dignity based on the character of God, you can see why the opinion poll shows 78, 80% of people in favor of, of changing the law. And again, it comes back to my earlier point that the arguments that we often employ to do with uh, changing of doctor-patient relationship, it, it's very abstract and it doesn't often connect with people uh, in terms of their immediate day-to-day -day experience. And that, that's just a huge, a huge challenge. Um, but I think secondly, the reason pressure is growing is because as a society, uh, we have become far more individualistic. Uh, and, and the way that... We, we tend to think the way that we prioritize things is very much based around the cult of me. So it's sort of a, 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 a global pandemic of selfishness, if I can put it like that. It, it's a kind of a collective belief that the only way I can be happy is to have complete and full autonomy. So that's really the idol of our society. My life, my choice, my decisions. It's no real surprise that the most popular song at funerals continues persistently to be Frank Sinatra's My Way. Okay, I mean, it may be number two now or number three, but you know, it's up there. And that's because it, it seems like as a society, that's what we value. We value independence, self-autonomy. And so you get these mantras, you've got to do what's right for you. And that ideology is very effective because it, it taps into something that lies in all of us. Uh, you know, no one is born not selfish. We're all born naturally, I think, selfish because we're bor born fallen and we want to be in control um, of our own lives and our own destinies. And so when faced with the challenge of suffering at the end of life versus a quick fix solution whereby you'll lose your life, but you won't have to go through the suffering, then you can see why people navigate themselves towards that. And when they're then told we can safeguard it, we can do it well, we can do it properly, we can do it carefully, this is just about compassion, this is just about dignity, um, you can see the appeal uh, to people. And to kind of speak into that, particularly in a media context, where I think often, sadly, some people in the media don't fully understand the arguments uh, that are going on, it is, is incredibly difficult. So I, I think that's why you see it, you see it growing. So you've had um, quite a bit of experience speaking uh, in the media on on, um, on this particular topic, including some very high profile uh, campaigners on the side of um, legalising assisted suicide. So you've obviously engaged with these arguments a lot. Um, so what, what would you say to the kind of what one of the main arguments is, you know, it's more compassionate to allow someone who is profoundly suffering at the end of their life, they've been given six months left to live, um, and, and they are really suffering, why not let that person choose when to end their life or why not end their suffering? Is, isn't that more compassionate than letting them suffer a, a horrible death? Isn't that more dignified? That's a very common argument. How do you normally respond to that? Mm. Yeah, I think, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to acknowledge 
uh, the reality of suffering. Um, and you have to also acknowledge that in some circumstances, even with the very best of care, it's not always possible to completely alleviate every single symptom, uh, every experience of pain that someone might be going through. Um, I, I think at the same time, that there's both a, an argument based on that individual's experience, and there's an argument based upon uh, the, the wider picture. Um, so so just, just taking the argument of that individual who's experienced pain and, un, and suffering at the end of their life, what you don't often hear mentioned is that because of the uh, investment and expansion of palliative care, which is end-of-life care, that in the vast majority of cases, it is possible nowadays to control pain and to manage symptoms, uh, to make that suffering less intense and less unbearable. And that is a, a far more positive thing to invest in because palliative care doesn't simply seek to treat your symptoms. It also addresses the bigger picture. So for you as an individual, palliative care seeks to address your emotional stresses and pains, your spiritual concerns. It seeks to address the whole person. And the hospice movement, which was pioneered in the UK, we are and continue to be a world leader on this in this respect. And when it is done well, it does give even suffering people genuine dignity uh, towards the end of their life and with love and care and respect uh, and without looking to deny them precious time with their family and closest friends. You know, that's that's one of the things that I think is so uh, important to say in this debate, that we have to respond to the individualistic narrative by constantly making the argument that no one is an island, that, uh, that, that we, are, we are part of a continent as it were, that, that the decisions and choices we make have ripple effects for particularly our loved ones, our families, our friends. Uh, and, and therefore, we also have to recognize that no one's autonomy is absolute. That, that in a democratic society, we, we accept uh, right from the word go, that there are limits to my freedom, that, that if my actions are going to cause harm to another human being, that I should be prohibited from doing that. And if I do it, there should be strong penalties that are applied. Um, and so the idea that, oh, this is just about individual choices is, 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 is redundant on that basis because we, we're talking about giving doctors the legal power to kill patients. And, and that turns doctors into judges. It turns doctors, it puts an enormous burden on them to decide, is this life valuable or not? Are we comfortable with giving doctors that uh, right, that power, that legal backing to do that? And it is absolutely no surprise to me whatsoever that in recent polling of the British Medical Association, which suggested that there's been some movement within the membership of the BMA, although I should say that many, many Christian doctors are not even part of the BMA. So if they were, perhaps that would counterbalance it somewhat. But nevertheless, some movement in favour of, of some kind of assisted suicide law. But when doctors were asked in that survey, would you be willing to participate uh, yourself in an assisted suicide and active euthanasia? Uh, the percentages swung the other way. The majority saying no, absolutely not. Don't want to go anywhere near it kind of thing. And that, that is no surprise to me at all. So I think we need to be focusing on the benefits of palliative care, which can, in the vast majority of cases, control pain and suffering at the end of life. We don't hear those stories in the media. We don't hear those stories being talked about. Um, and then 
Secondly, we need to look at the, the bigger picture, which is that, that changing the law uh, would have dramatic effects for the doctor-patient relationship. It would fundamentally alter your the balance of trust. So right now, if my relative is unwell, because the law says the doctors cannot legally uh, help this person to die or kill them, I have confidence to know that the decisions that doctors and nurses are taking are aiming to preserve life, which is the very basis of the Hippocratic Oath, which is this ancient oath that doctors and medical professionals sign up to. So that's, that's one thing. But secondly, we have always made the case that the right to die can very quickly become the duty to die. And you create, as I've talked about before, this culture of expectation whereby, in effect, suddenly uh, economics comes into it. It's much cheaper to kill someone uh, with a terminal illness than it is to care for them because care costs money, whereas killing them costs a lot less. Now, how can we be absolutely certain that economics will not start coming into the decisions that judges are making? You know, there are some academics who have published studies saying assisted suicide would save the National Health Service money. And, and as a Christian, as someone who values life and, and believes that we should not ever, ever treat any human being as an object or, or, or base their value just upon their economic ability, uh, I reject that completely. And as a society, that's what we should do. And, in these coronavirus times, what we have seen is an instinctive recognition that human contact matters, that we should care for the vulnerable, that we should look after those who are who are most at risk from this virus. Well, assisted suicide euthanasia just completely cuts against all of that. So there's the kind of common good argument um, that we need uh, to have um, robust protections uh, in place that, that hard cases don't make good laws. Mm. Um, and then there's the individual argument that palliative care can, does, and will in the vast majority of cases help. No one is trying to say this is perfect. It's a balance. And the current law, which says no to assisted suicide, but offers leniency in the cases of some, someone who themselves commits suicide, from my perspective, strikes the right balance. And, and that's why I don't think it should be changed. But look, arguing this, it's an interesting experience in the media because when you're up against uh, just a, sort of a general volunteer, very often they'll, they'll come with a personal story uh, of, and, and, and it's very sad. And I just encourage you, if you're ever in that situation, don't belittle them, like respond humanly to their experience, try and understand that they may not have arrived at the point of believing in assisted suicide because of some robust worked out theology as it were, but rather because what they have seen and witnessed, they never ever ever want to see and witness again. And, and that fear of what they've seen dominates how they then think about it. Just be very sensitive with how we respond to that. Um, it's a different matter when you're debating campaigners who have often never experienced uh, anything like the kind of stories that they love to promote. Um, I think it is important to be more robust in those situations and push back upon the sometimes the outrageous things that they end up saying because um, they're trying to change the law and they're ideologically motivated, as I must admit am I. So it's just a fascinating experience. I, in fact, I'll just tell you this, Naomi, the, the first time I went on TV about this, this is really bad, I it, it, I debated the chief executive of, of Dignity and Dying, the big uh, pro-euthanasia um, society in the UK. They were formerly known as the Voluntary Euthanasia Society. Um, and uh, I debated uh, Sarah Watton um, on this uh, Victoria Derbyshire show. And it was my first time ever on TV. Mm, and, gosh. Um, I got the call at 9.30 in the morning. 
I appeared, no, nine o'clock in the morning. I appeared uh, on TV, I think it was about 11. Um, when I got the call, I was actually in a card shop buying a family member, my sister, I think it was a, a birthday card. <laughs> you know, at my desk. Went back to my desk and had about 15 minutes with one of our policy officers who um, talked with me and then prayed for me. I walked over to Millbank uh, Studios just around the corner from CARE's offices by myself and I sat in a room. Um, I couldn't, I wasn't in the studio. Uh, I, I, I eventually discovered that the sound would come from my right-hand side. But at that moment, I, I actually was convinced that they'd, they'd made me look a right mug because they hadn't given me an ear, earpiece. So I thought I wouldn't be able to hear anything. They told me where to look. It was just into a, a random camera in front of me. And um, I can only describe what happened next as, as God's grace and God's mercy. And that when I did hear the sound coming through, I mean, my legs were shaking before, before this happened. Thankfully, no one could see that. And uh, when, um, uh, when, when the sound did come through, I think God just enabled me to speak slowly, mm-hmm. calmly, clearly, without waving my arms around lots, which I tend to do when I speak in any other circumstance. And it was his grace that saw me through that. And I learned from that, that 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 is something we have a real problem with people often unwilling to put their head above the parapet and speak out about this issue. But I think sometimes it's because we're understandably afraid. But God's grace, God's ability to empower you in the moment um, with an infusion of his spirit, as it were, it's probably theologically dodgy, but it's but it's the experience Uh, is that's what he does. Uh, Gives you the words. Yeah. Absolutely. I just encourage you to remember that if you're afraid of, of speaking out because uh, mm. we need people to speak out. I'm just touching on something you mentioned about um, people's fears. Um, and, and obviously there's this, this, this sense of people being very afraid of suffering and of, of having an undignified end to their lives. But there's also this fear around becoming a burden or, or, uh, you know, as you said, if, if somebody in your family um, was, was terminally ill, you can now trust that doctors will have their best interests and will, will look at, after them to the end of their life, their natural lives. But of course, if assisted suicide were legalized, then um, that wouldn't be the case. That trust in doctors would be eroded. And you, 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 you hear all the time people, for example, with disabilities saying that they're, they're afraid of a change to the law. And in Canada, people, people carry around cards saying, please don't euthanize me. Um, we've seen horrible stories of, of people being pressured into um, assisted suicide in places like Canada. So there's this real fear around, um, around the end of life. But um, a, a main argument that's also used by campaigners is that you can put these safeguards in place, that if you have all these safeguards, you make sure that the decision that is made is free and volunta- uh, voluntary. There's, there's been no coercion, no pressure. You make sure that the illness is terminal, that they've only got six months left to live. All of these safeguards are put in place and people of course argue all the time about if there was a change in the law in Great Britain then those safeguards would be there how do you respond to that when people make this argument why why would we be any different from other countries where they have tried this and where there have been uh, safeguards that have been eroded over time uh, where the evidence is that people can choose euthanasia or assisted suicide uh, for reasons other than unbearable pain um, I, I think it's a kind of institutional arrogance that we have, whereby we think we can do it better. Um, and sometimes we parachute in experts from other countries 
uh, to tell us about their experience, who conveniently forget to mention anything about the problems, the difficulties, and the culture that it creates. I mean, what you said there about Canadians carrying around cards saying, please don't euthanize me. I, I just think that is awful. Like, if that's where we're at, if that's where we're headed, that's so sad that that, that that's kind of a fear working in a, in, in, in a different direction. There's the fear of suffering, but there's also the fear of, of, you know, doctors killing you because they make the decision and it's taken out of your hands. The, the, these aren't, this isn't scaremongering. This is based on evidence. It's based on reality. Uh, you know, based on the numbers from the Netherlands, one person is euthanized there every 80 minutes. Wow. Uh, that, that's the frequency of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is a complete culture change that we would be kind of going through if we, if we were to do this. If we were to legalize doctors to kill patients in certain circumstances, um, I don't think that you could ever create a law that is absolutely bulletproof, that that would never uh, see cases of exploitation, of coercion, of abuse, because coercion and abuse, uh, pressure from a family member, for example, it's so difficult to prove that that is not happening um, because those conversations may happen in private, uh, obviously away from uh, the authorities, and then the patient makes the request the next day, and they don't really want to, but they feel like they have to. How on earth would you police that? How, how would you properly safeguard against that? I think that's mission impossible. And so the risk, therefore, of legalizing assisted suicide is too much because we cannot guarantee that the law would work perfectly. The other thing to say, it's a point that I made when I when I went and spoke at, at the church in Derby um, before the MP there, was that the medic, medical sciences is, 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 is science. It's not fact always. That means that it's, it's theory. Uh, so predictions about how long someone can live with a terminal illness are not always accurate. Uh, sometimes, yes, it, 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 it's shorter, but, but actually, I, I think more often than not, it, people can live longer than the diagnosis that they're given. People can surprise you. Um, and, you know, I, I, uh, we published something just recently at CARE called uh, Tony's Story, um, and it features our chief exec, uh, Nola Leach, and, and she's talking about her husband. Um, they were married for nearly 50 years, and, and Tony had uh, Alzheimer's for the last two years of his life, and passed away a few years ago. And there was a moment where he expressed the desire to not go on any longer. He was at a miserable point, lost the use of his legs, incontinent, really, really suffering. But Nola talked about that as just a fleeting moment. He never said that again. And in fact, it wasn't long after that, that there was a moment uh, before he died where he had clarity of thought and could remember things and there was a like a brief window where Nola said he was the old Tony again and they would sing she would sing he would sing and her friend was with her as well at the time they'd sing the song that she walked down the aisle to they'd sing other favorite hymns that they found on their phone and then he started laughing because he realized he sounded pretty odd uh, I guess because his his voice had, had suffered with the Alzheimer's and so that moment would have been taken away from them both had assisted suicide being something that was an instant response, uh, you know, something that could be uh, certified quickly and easily uh, by doctors in that situation. And I think we have to recognise that, that for me, uh, assisted suicide, the arguments for it are an attempt to simplify and give control in one of the messiest and most difficult to control parts of human existence. And I also think that that attempt is doomed to fail. 
And I also think that as Christians, we have a, a deeper and bigger understanding of the value of suffering. Um, in society, suffering seems to be something to be avoided at every possible cost. Life is about avoiding difficulty and, and having as much comfort and ease as possible. But I think as a Christian, if I've read the Bible correctly, suffering is something that God uses to, to do a, a miraculous work in us. Uh, suffering is something that he takes and it's an instrument in his hands to do us the ultimate good of making us more like Jesus. We learn lessons in the midst of suffering that we would never otherwise learn. Lessons about dependence on God, our relationship with God goes deeper when we're in the valley of the shadow of death than when we're in the, the, the green lands of comfort and ease kind of thing. And of course, ultimately, uh, suffering was redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who, who suffered in the most unimaginable way when he became that substitute for us on the cross. And he, he, you know, not just physically suffered. I mean, other people since Jesus have suffered in worse physical ways than he suffered on the cross. But it was the spiritual suffering that he went through that was even worse. Um, and I think that we, <clears throat> as Christians, we are, we are never going to be called to suffer to the extent that Christ suffered. Um, and that means that there is always hope. Um, even in the most awful pain and difficulty, there is always hope. And I think that too is, is something that the other side, they don't offer any hope because death is not hope. Death is for, for someone who doesn't believe in God. Death is not is, is the worst mm -hmm. thing of all. Um, and so there's an evangelistic part I think of this argument from a Christian perspective as well, that we don't want people to be taken before the time that God has appointed because um, there are moments, therefore, when they could have listened and heard the gospel of Jesus and responded, and, and that's been denied them by the fact that, that they've chosen to end their life prematurely. So it is a really difficult subject. It's really sensitive. Mm -hmm. I do think that that we as Christians have a responsibility to speak out. I mean, think about how much the Bible talks about defending the vulnerable. Um, I, I dread to think with a crisis of loneliness that we have that's only been made worse by coronavirus, the pressure that older people will come under if we change the law. It doesn't even bear thinking. People who, who live by themselves, who go window to window and never see another human being, who would be tempted, no doubt, if they experience pain to think, I have no family, I have no friends, What's the point? Mm. It just breaks your heart because that's not how it's supposed to be. Mm. And the answer isn't death. The answer is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to, to reach out with compassion and care and to affirm that person's value and worth. And, and, and there's nothing more powerful than when Christians do that for strangers because it's, it's easier with family and friends. But when you do it for a stranger, when you get alongside a stranger and you say, you know, that person is isolated, alone, bereft of friends and family, and you say to them, I will be your friend, I will be your family. Uh, that, that is the gospel being outworked. And that, that's a hopeful message for our mm. society. Um, far more hopeful than assisted suicide. Mm. Yeah, thank you, James. I think you've really outlined there how we as Christians can, can look at this issue in such a different way and how we can 
um, offer hope to people that we have this better story. We often talk about this at Care that, that, that we have a better story to tell um, than those who are campaigning for a change in law um, that will allow uh, legalised assisted suicide um, in Great Britain. Um, so finally, James, how can we be praying? How can we be praying for any upcoming challenges that we might be facing in different parliaments and assemblies um, across the UK at the moment? Uh, one way that you can pray is uh, we at CARE, we produce this um, 10 ways to pray for the end of life uh, prayer leaflet. Uh, you can find it on our website, care.org.uk forward slash prayer. Um, and then scroll down, you'll find it. Uh, that's a good way to, to, to get you praying about lots of the different issues that I've talked about, we've discussed together. Um, pray for uh, MPs and MSPs who believe in the value of life. Uh, and, and pray that they will hold firm. Um, and then secondly, pray for every organization out there that is seeking to campaign against the change in the law, that, that we would do so with the grace and the wisdom that we need, because we need God's help if we're going to resist the next attempt to try and change the law. Um, and I think just finally, just pray that God would burden his church with a, a greater and deeper desire to, to speak uh, well into this situation. Um, and I think that it is, it is a topic that we can naturally steer ourselves away from because we're worried about, you know, different Christians might take different views on that. That's okay. So finally, just pray that the unity of the church will not be broken on, on this issue, that we'll be able to dialogue well with people who may be more nervous, may be more influenced by that individualistic ideology. It's gone to the church as well. So we know that you know, it's entirely possible that Christians will take the view that this surely is okay. Let's listen to why they think that work with them. Try to bring them back to those fundamentals of God and creation and dignity. So just pray that uh, we at CARE as well would do that really well and constructively. Mm, thank you so much. And if you do want to find out about uh, more arguments uh, for or against assisted suicide, we've got some fantastic articles on our website that you can look at, which outline the arguments. We also have a, a biblical discussion booklet that you can download, um, which outlines the, the biblical perspective um, on the end of life. And we would really encourage you to watch Tony's story, which is this fantastic new video that we've produced, where our chief executive, Nola Leach, talks about her experience of her husband at the end of his life. And you can find that on our YouTube channel. But thank you so much, James, for joining uh, me today on the Carecast. It's been fantastic having you. And thank you so much for sharing your heart on this issue with us. Thank you so much. You've been listening you. to the Carecast. Remember to subscribe to get the latest episodes and find out more about the work of care on care.org.uk. Care for what you believe.